Hi friends, welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Cynthia Weems. Cynthia Weems is an elder in the Florida Annual Conference and throughout her ministry, she's been a missionary to Bolivia, pastored congregations across the US, served as a district superintendent, and at the time of this recording, is serving as the assistant to Bishop Tom Berlin for congregational mission. As you'll hear in this interview, Cynthia has been born and raised in United Methodism. As she shares her formative experiences and call to ministry, I found myself appreciating the ways that she has stayed open to the Holy Spirit's leadership over the course of her journey. In this conversation, we hear of Cynthia's understanding of the complexities of privilege, as well as the tensions of the church's cultural diversity. And it is her spiritual gifts of administration and communication that I think are literally doing the necessary work that will make a future United Methodist Church possible. This was a helpful and instructive episode for me, and I think it'll be the same for many of our listeners. So you know what to do. Grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this interview with Cynthia Weeks. Cynthia Weems, so great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm doing awesome. I know lots about your journey and stuff, but there's stuff that I know I don't know. And so I'd like to start kind of from the beginning, how Cynthia Weems uh, became a follower of Jesus, a United Methodist Christian, God's provenient grace in your life. Um, Tell us a little bit of the story of how all of this began. Thank you. It's great to be with you, and it's a joy to be able to reflect a little bit on yeah. on my journey. Um, in in various meetings and informational sessions we've been doing as superintendents over the last year or two, I have found myself um, when talking about the United Methodist Church and the future of the church and my excitement about the future of the church that I'll always remind people that I come from a family where both my parents and both sets of grandparents were Methodist. Wow. Uh, Methodist in in the state of Mississippi in two different communities, and so you know if I if I were to have a paper cut today and start bleeding, I would bleed the cross and flame. Oh come on now! <laughs> you know, okay. I mean it it comes from both sides and and both sets of very committed grandparents uh, in churches I attended with them when I was young. My father's a pastor, so growing up in a in a United Methodist home. So there's just something um, about the United Methodist Church in particular that resonates with me in a very, in a very special way. Uh, you know, later I would attend a United Methodist College, and then I would attend um, an interdenominational seminary, and it was a good experience for me because really, for the first time in my life, I had to answer the question: So why do you do it that way? You know, mm-hmm. like, why do the Methodists do it like this? Like, yeah. I don't know, just because that's the best way to do it. Yeah. And and I found out that wasn't really the right answer. So I had to, I had to dig that's deeper. That's not the that. right answer? 
not the right answer, apparently. Uh, (laughs) So it was, so it's been a journey. It's been a journey into my late teen and early twenties, a journey of, of really thinking through those roots, those Methodist roots, a lot of which I, I took for granted, you know, for a long time. But certainly my call to ministry to kind of uh, move into the next piece of, of that, it happened at very early in my life. Uh, by about eight years old, I was articulating that I want to be a preacher when I grow up. Now, interestingly, I found a little book. Um, years later, I found a, you know, a book you have when you're a kid and you write down, you know, it has questions. What's your favorite color? Who's your best friend? And mm-hmm. one question was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer is I had two, a preacher or a professional football player. So, oh, wow. you know, um, one of those didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my plan B. My yeah. plan B is what I'm living, right? But um, as a as a kid, pretty early on, I articulated, you know, wanted to be a preacher. I very much identified with, I think, the work that I saw my dad doing as a local church pastor, he got to spend all day at church. I mean, I remember in my mind thinking like, why would anyone want to work anywhere else? Because mm. the church to me was such a um, a place of joy and mm. community. Now the church that he served when I was a kid had a family life center and it had a gym and it had a, it had a, a room full of roller skates. And so I spent my days after school, my brother and I would go straight to the church. It would roller skate all afternoon. So, hey, who would want that mm, one, right? Yeah, yeah. So I have learned that ministry is not all roller skating, although it is sometimes roller skating. It, it can be, yeah. Um, but to me, the community piece was so you know, pivotal to my call. Now, later, of course, my dad would help me to see some other sides of the church. Uh, I, I, didn't, I wasn't in all the meetings with him. But um, but the community was such a draw for me. And I think for for people in general, the community is the draw for a Christian life. And it's where you you choose to learn how to grow more deeply in relationship to God. It doesn't happen for everyone that way. But I think for our churches to remember the importance of the community, when people walk into a church and they don't find community or they find a bickering community, right? Mm-hmm. Or a, um, an unwelcoming community. That's the picture many people are receiving of God. Wow. I know I learned a lot about who God is through community, mm-hmm. through church community. So, wow. uh, so for me, you know, important pieces of my faith, you know, an understanding of grace in my life, forgiveness, um, you know, really come from from those early memories of living in community together. Wow. Cynthia, I'm just, I'm curious. I've obviously know many female clergy interviewed several of them on this podcast. And many of my female clergy colleagues talk about having a call very early on. Most of them point to other women that they saw in ministry. And so there's something unique it makes sense seeing your father and immediately and and that being sort of an example, but it, that's interesting to me. Um, and I'm wondering if there were other other influences that also like you saw them and you're like, yeah, that that looks a little bit like what I'm what I think I'm called yeah. towards, yeah. regardless of gender. I'm curious right. there were other other examples for you that really kind of 
gave you a sense of where you might be headed? Yeah, well, that's such a great question and, and relates to me particularly because I, my parents did an incredible thing because I was a young person, very young person saying, I feel a call to ministry. Um, interestingly, we were living in Mississippi uh, where my father was a pastor and there was one female pastor in Mississippi when I was a kid. In, in, in the whole conference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Her name was Betty Rife, married to Joe Rife. They are a clergy couple and they were about an hour from where we lived. Mm -hmm. And my parents set it up one summer when I was either eight or nine years old that I would go stay with them for about a week. They had two very small children. So the, the ruse was that I would go help them with their small children, be like a little bit of a babysitter. Mm -hmm. And they simply wanted me to, to experience a female clergy person, which I was able to mm -hmm. do. Now, a, a huge joy in that is that I saw Joe and Betty Rife uh, just a few months ago. They have lived in southwestern Virginia uh, for years uh, in, in ministry there, and I've seen them in the jurisdiction throughout the years, and they have long Mississippi roots. And I've been able to share with them how important it was for me. I remember. I remember their home, remember their small mm -hmm. children, and that was significant. Years later, when I was about 14, uh, the same thing would happen. I'd spend about a month in the summer out in California with a clergy woman, uh, with a young child that needed some extra attention. That was, that's a good excuse and was able to really see her in ministry. And that was, um, that was pivotal and, and important. Um, I think it, it is important to see what life is like. Now, interestingly, although there were no other female pastors in Mississippi, I never got the memo that some people think women shouldn't be pastors. I mean, I think mm -hmm. I was in college before I actually learned that, before someone said, oh, really? You want to be a preacher? Women can do that? Wow. I remember thinking, what? Where have they been? And so that's how different my growing up was, um, that it it really never occurred to me I couldn't do it. I I love that. <laughs> I, I really love that. Um, take us, continue to take us down that road so you... Um, discerning this call at a very young age, your parents are creating an environment that nurtures that call. Um, when did you, I mean, I guess you've discerned your call to ministry. Was there a point sort of um, in late in the late teens, early adulthood, when it's sort of like, yes, this is it. This is definitely all bets uh -huh. in the, um, on the ministry train in a sense? You know, I really think so. I think that another interest I had in high school was journalism and I was kind of the editor of the school newspaper and did that kind of work. And probably in, if someone had asked what else might you do, I might've said, well, that'd be interesting to, to, to be a writer. Mm -hmm. um, but I was so involved in youth group and in conference youth work. I went into college knowing I was um, searching for a major that would fit, uh, that would be um, that would be a helpful one for for going to seminary. Early in college, I would have said I was pre-seminary. So it really, very early on. Uh, I, later, when I was in seminary, I did pursue the possibility of maybe continuing into a PhD program when I graduated. And it was kind of on that track for a bit, just trying to set myself up to be able to apply to programs if I wanted to. And the, the a, a clear voice came back to me that that really wasn't the track for me. Um, I did love being in school, 
Um, and that was a safe place for me. But interestingly, the voice that that returned to me was not only are you not meant to go into a PhD program, but actually um, you need to go somewhere really far away. Um, now, when I told my colleague I, at that time, I was in the what's now the Great Plains Conference. My, my mm -hmm. home conference was the Kansas East Conference. And I told my my great friend from Kansas East who was already serving there um, that that word from God that I had heard about going somewhere very remote. And she said, gosh, the bishop's going to be really happy to hear that. <laughs> like wow. there's some remote places in Kansas. That's good news. Yeah. I said, well, actually, I have this feeling that it's meant to be really, really remote, like far away from the comforts of this world. And um, and so it did work out for me to um, to leave seminary and go to the country of Bolivia. Uh, what, what would be, I, I thought several months, but it turned out to be a couple of years. And, and it was really, you know, so even with my call to ministry and this clarity that I felt as a young person, um, what God clearly said to me was, um, you've still got some stuff you need to learn. Um, you've been so clear that we're going to just muddy the waters just a little bit. And um, you're comfortable in a library and you're comfortable in a classroom and You've been you've been comfortable interning at some churches over the years, uh, but there's there's more I need to teach you mm -hmm. about yourself and about ministry before you actually do this thing called be a pastor, and that's what happened. Wow, I, I want to dig into your time in Bolivia in a second. Um, I'm I'm curious, yeah, you know, so much life lived, you know. You know, over the years up to this point where you are in your journey, is there anything that you wished you knew, like late teens, like heading into college, and 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 you know, even even as you're you're really getting sort of the sense of what this calling on your life is going to look like, is there anything that you look back to like, man, I I, I wish I knew this. Um, it would have made things a little bit easier for me along the journey. Hmm, that is that's a good question. Uh, I think I think advice I've given to other people is to I, I really feel like I almost missed the word, missed the voice uh, mm. about spending some time in a place where I'm less comfortable. And I'm mm. so grateful that and there were other people in my life that were helping me hear that voice at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I've tried to share with young people, you know, there is time. There seems to be a trajectory, you know, and the ordination process of the United Methodist Church is not quick. Nope. So people feel like I kind of got to jump on this train and I've got to really, um, you know, get to the end of the line as quickly as I can. But I've tried to encourage people to, to be aware of places where they can just take a deep breath and take some time away or, or mm. do that internship or take a year to work as a chaplain or, you know, whatever it's going to be that kind of helps in further discerning what the way the church works often is kind of once you're in, you're in, right? I mean, you're serving, mm -hmm. you're doing your part, and it it is a little bit harder um, to take that time and to pause. So doing that as a young person, I think is really important. Oh, I'm going to have to grab that snapshot of this interview and like blast that to some of my students because that is right in the pocket. Yeah. So one more piece before we move on. I, it it it's not a secret that you do come from this really incredible family with this legacy and and your father uh 
has his own sort of world of United Methodist fame for lack yeah. of a better way yeah. of saying it. Um, and and I appreciate your father, Lovett Weems, and all that he brings to our church. He just helps us think better, I think. Um, and, and I'm really grateful for that. But I wonder just what it was like to have like this front row seat watching your dad's career kind of move into I mean, not everybody's father is Love right. It Weems, you know, right? <laughs> what was that like to watch watch your dad's journey? And, and, and what did you think about yours, as, even as you were watching his yeah. sort of evolve over time? Oh, thanks for the question. Well, I'd be lying if I didn't say it wasn't great. Just absolutely great to have Love It Weems as my dad. He's, he's a great dad, and he's also an, an incredible leader in the church. And, you know, over the years, it was it was hard as a young person to see all that. You know, you're a kid growing up in a family. And um, we saw more of that perhaps because we were so involved in the church and we could we could see and experience much of that early on. And uh, I would, um, you know, of course, coming into ministry, just recognizing the wealth of knowledge and um, that he has. It's so helpful too because because it's the church world. It's not perhaps a parent that works in a corporation where you never go or you're not around. I, for a long time, I've encountered people in in all kinds of places here in Florida. You know, in my own conference home or around the mm -hmm. denomination, and and they have stories of how his work or a class he taught or a book he wrote has really impacted their ministry. And in a very practical ways, which is so much of what he brings is just this practical love of the church and and how to make it more vital. Mm. And so people respond to that. Pastors appreciate the, the advice, the mentoring, the coaching, the very practical tips, um, all the things the Lewis Center for Church Leadership has brought, you know, to the church. And so that's wonderful. You know, I remember one of the appointments I served it was August. So I, I got in there July 1st. He and my mom came for a visit in August. And I said, I need to show you some things. And I laid out on the dining room table, these financial reports. And I said, could you look these over and give me your assessment? Yes. And he yes. did it. And he said, this is a mess. Mm. This is a mess. And it was. And, you know, he he set out coaching me on how to lead that church in a time when financially it was it was in a mess. And within six months, we had very strategically put some things in place, cut the budget for that would be for the new year, uh, made some decisions. I found the lay folks to be surprisingly open and welcome because they knew they already knew that. Right. And so they needed someone to walk alongside them. And it was such a joy, really. Someone said of my dad once, most, most pastors don't like numbers, but when numbers walk in the room, love it, Weems says, oh, my friends are here. The numbers have come, they've arrived. And it's true. And he's taught me how numbers can be our friends, even if the numbers are bad. Mm -hmm. They can be our mm -hmm. friends because they're, they're giving us information. They're yeah. giving us helpful information that we need. And it's budget numbers, it's worship attendance numbers, it's how many are in Sunday school, 
It's how many are coming to youth group. I mean, it gives us information we need to assess what we're doing and mm -hmm. to consider how to do it better. And so that's just one example of many ways that he's contributed um, to my ministry personally. And of course, so many other people have similar stories about how he responded to an email, got on a Zoom call, um, you know, uh, really coached them through some some similar things. And that's that's just a wonderful gift. And so it's, of course, great to have that, you know, right at my fingertips. Right, like just send a quick text message. <laughs> hey, Dad, if you've got a couple of moments. <laughs> that's right, that's oh, right. Wow, that's, that is, um, I mean, I am, I am with your dad. I am here for the numbers, like, show me the spreadsheet all day. Um, but I just, I can imagine sort of that, that moment in, in, you know, you just putting those statements in front of yes. him and him just yes. walking you through like this line item. I, I just, oh man, yeah. thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so you spend some time in Bolivia um, doing missionary work. Um, and, and how actually does, did that work out? Like, how did you, how did you choose Bolivia? Right. What was the connection mm -hmm. there? Yep. So I had um, a wonderful woman named Rena Yoakum from my home conference, met me for coffee. I think it was over Thanksgiving break of my last year in seminary. And she said, you know, there's someone you need to meet. Um, and Nora Boots was her day. And you need to meet Nora Boots. She'll have some, some ideas for you. So I tracked down Nora Boots and um, a wonderful woman from Bolivia now, at the time, Nora had a variety of possibilities for me, and she had thoughts because she was working for the General Board of Global Ministries in New York. Mm -hmm. And um, so really kind of thought through the possibilities. But she, of course, had personal connections in Bolivia. And in the end, that would work out. I At the time, I wasn't looking to do an official GBGM program in part because I, I thought it was just a short-term thing. I thought by the next year, I'll be back to take an appointment. I, I'm just looking at seven or eight months. Mm -hmm. um, so I had some support from my um, home church. And so I knew that that could work out. And um, so so she set me up to do it really as a volunteer. I got to Cochabamba, Bolivia. I was greeted at the airport. And I realized at that moment, I don't know Spanish. This is, this is gonna be interesting. Um, I had some awareness. I mean, I had a couple years in high school. Um, all of it escaped me, every single word. I couldn't even remember how to say thank you uh, when I got off that plane. And uh, and so for it'll surprise people who know me because I love to talk so much. But for a good four or five months, I said nothing. I mean, I was so quiet. I was just taking it all in. And they had me working with, in the church with three and four year olds, which was good. And uh, so I knew how to get people to the bathroom fast. That was my yeah. job. They need water, food, bathroom break. Yeah. So so remained there and then was able to get some continued support to stay uh, financially. It, it really doesn't. I think I had five thousand dollars that lasted me for almost two years in Bolivia. It just doesn't take very much. Mm. Um and so remained there for another year, another appointment year, and um, just had such a wonderful experience. I did learn the language, so I was able to work more in a in a pastoral capacity with the, with a pastoral team mm -hmm. there in this kind of mountainside church uh, in Cochabamba. And it was it was such a wonderful gift, and and it taught me a lot about myself and about the world. It taught me about um, how to be. Um, how to be comfortable with just sitting and waiting and listening and wondering 
um, it's, it's easy to think there are quick answers when you live in a country like ours and to be among people who have never received a quick answer for anything. Um, mm. Things take a long time and lots of dreams and goals in your life actually never happen. And so just what does it mean to, um, to be present with people uh, in a, with a Christian understanding of, you know, God is with us. The church where I worked was Emmanuel. You know, literally God is with us. And that was a huge mantra for them. God is with us. Like in a very hard situation in poverty, most families living without running water. Um, uh, God is with us. This The church where I worked had a, a very extensive kind of community-based model for, for ministry and sort of healthcare and with women's projects. There was a sewing cooperative. So women um, sewed things like well, I sewed all kinds of things, but one one of the things I often brought home with me were stoles, you know, clerical stoles. You've seen some of those probably worn by some Florida conference folks yeah, at the conference, yeah. uh, from Bolivia. And um, there was a, a washing cooperative. Most of the women in the church washed clothes for a living. In Bolivia, even if you were wealthy, you didn't own washing machines. What you had is someone who washed your clothes for you by mm. hand. And so many women in our church, six days a week, were washing clothes by hand for other families. And this was done at the river, done in basins, it's hard labor and you hang the clothes to dry and then you have to iron every single one of them. And so they created a, a cooperative at the church where there were washing basins in a room so you didn't have to be out in the hot sun. The women would come and bring the clothes from their clients would wash the clothes. So in the front of the church, there there was hanging underwear every single day, just lines of clothing in the front of this church property every day of the week. Wow. And then they'd bring them in, that iron them and get them back to their to their clients. Well, if women are washing other people's clothes six days of the week, what are they doing on Sundays? Washing, washing their own clothes, clothes. Their, for their, for right. them and their family, yeah. That's right. So we had worship at eight o'clock on Sunday nights which was when the, the men who were laborers, who worked seven days a week laboring, and women were able to come to worship. Um, but it was like, so it was a, a church that had these wonderful community-based programs for women, for children uh, in an impoverished community, and just such a, such a wonderful learning experience. And at the same time, I learned that, um, you know, when you have blue eyes and an American passport, as much as I try to to live like they lived, right? I had a very small room. Um, I didn't have refrigeration in the room I lived in. I washed my clothes by hand too. I tried my best to, to really live uh, in humility, which was very important and good for me too. At, at a moment's notice, I had parents who could get me a plane ticket home. I had a passport that would get me back to the States. There's really nothing I could do ultimately to, to change some of these factors, which is a lot of what we're learning about here all these years later. I mean, this was back in 1997 when I was there. So all these years later, when we talk about things like white privilege, I remember that. I remember my skin color, my eye color, um, and my passport wow. could get me all kinds of things. And I didn't earn any of those things, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, the other thing I learned is that an American can be illegal in another country for a period of time. There were many times in my two years when I did not have proper documentation to be in Bolivia. 
Mm. I have to leave the country to get a stamp in my passport. I may or may not have paid someone to provide me with a stamp in my passport. And, you know, if I tell that story in the United States, nobody cares. Nobody thinks I'm a terrible person. Nobody thinks thinks I've done something awful. And um, and so it, it gave me a very different perspective on immigration in the United States and how we demonize folks, right, who... Yeah. Um, who do what they need and uh, often have to do related to providing for families. I wasn't in Bolivia to provide for my family. It was a, an excursion. And so just how we how we need to be able to see people from a different lens. Um, as Christians, our governments that may have to see people in a certain way, you know, our, um, as Christians though, with a biblical lens, we have a pretty clear mandate on how we're meant to see people. and and relate to people. And, and that can be our witness that I think it can change laws. It can change the way that we, we, we live in a global community. My goodness, Cynthia, I was not, I was not prepared for that. Um, wow. Such a rich time. It seems like you had in mm -hmm. Bolivia. Dude. Was it, what was your entrance back into the States? Like, was that, <laughs> Was that a difficult transition back or? Well, I had the, the, the gift of returning to my home conference, again, the Kansas East Conference. And I just recently, I saw my first superintendent. She and I were able to meet for lunch. It was so wonderful. Mm. Her name is Sharon Howell. And I, I thanked her again for being such a wonderful first superintendent. And I remember she took me to coffee after I got back and it was appointment season and she said, so what's your dream appointment? I mean, that's a pretty great question, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I tried to remember that as a superintendent. It's good to ask. I mean, she could have assumed things about what kind of appointment I would like, but she actually asked me. And it wasn't her way of saying, um, I'm going to make it happen, but she mm -hmm. wanted to know. And I said, um, you know, this is back in, in again, my former conference. And I said, I, 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 I have learned Spanish. It's been so hard and I've learned it <laughs> and, and I feel drawn to an immigrant community. And I know that we have churches in our urban core in Kansas city, Kansas, that uh, have populations of immigrants surrounding them. And that would be a, a place where I feel like I could use, could use my gifts. Um, and in the end, she did appoint me, the cabinet did appoint me to an urban congregation um, where equitable comp, you know, made it possible for me to stay there for five years. My first appointment, it was an Anglo congregation in a neighborhood that was almost entirely um, made up of Mexican immigrants who some had been there for a long, long time because the, the trains come through Kansas City, Kansas. And so mm -hmm. trains brought um, Mexican immigrants, laborers to Kansas City, Kansas, 100 years before I was there. Uh, but there were new immigrants there. And so we, again, we started community ministries. We had a sewing room. We had, mm -hmm. um, we had volunteers from the church of the resurrection came and they put in electrical cords all the way around this one room on the third floor. And they, they donated sewing machines and brought fabric and, and many women, some for my mother's United Methodist women or United women in faith circle uh, came and brought their, their own time and, and volunteerism to it. They, it's amazing how older women in our country. sew, mm, mm. younger women don't, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but young immigrant women. sew, mm. and so there's this natural bridge. 
And guess what? You don't have to speak the language. You just have to sit there in front of a sewing machine because you can point to everything. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, it was such a joyful, wonderful time. And so we had ministries like that and ESL classes and a Spanish worship service and, um, you know, other other ministries as well. So it was it was so it was such a joy to be able to come back and just jump right into a, a ministry setting that allowed for that in an Anglo congregation that really was ready and understood the need for that. And that was, they were, they were wonderful. Um, Mm -hmm. I did find as well that for me personally, I grew up in a community where, where the, the racial divide was black and white, you know, in the state of Mississippi and something that's still very close to my heart. It was close to my family's heart. My parents, you know, were very committed to building bridges um, Mm -hmm. in, in between that particular community, between the black community and the white community in the South. Um, and as I grew up um, and then went to Bolivia, I think for me, I've learned as in my own calling, uh, that is still very profound for me in my own my own sense of, of having grown up in that context in Mississippi. And now it really has translated into working with immigrant communities. So when you have the ability to, to speak the language and you have a heart for um, a new community of people, which certainly happened for me coming back from Latin America. All of a sudden, you're able to, to, in your pastoral ministry, to build these bridges that are so critical. So I look like everybody's granddaughter, you know, in my church, and they trust me in that way. And so then for me to be able to reach out to this new community, a community they feel like they don't have much access to. So they know their neighbors are now um, mostly Mexican. They know that they speak Spanish and they don't feel they have um, access to understanding that community better. So mm-hmm. as a pastor, really being able to, to help, to really be able to help build a bridge um, in that way. And so I've just found that that's been a, a key piece of my ministry in most settings where I've served is just to try to be a, a, a bridge builder. And I'm sure there's personality types and Enneagram numbers or whatever that would speak to that too, but yeah, 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 yeah. Oh man, I just know in my heart that's what that's something God has placed on my heart a long time ago. Build some bridges, so it's been a joy. Wow. So incredible. Is that that bridge building something that you can see through? You've served congregations across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that sort of as a as a thread through your ministry and it congregations? It really has been. It really has been. And so sometimes it's age, you know, like I mentioned, sometimes it's, I think for a lot of pastors, we are kind of old folks in young bodies. Sometimes we're kind of, kind of old souls. Mm. And so that really helps us to identify with, with sometimes we find ourselves in older congregations. And so that, um, so that is a bridge to be built. Oftentimes it's with a neighborhood or a community our um, younger people, our immigrant community, et cetera. So I think for me, certainly that's been important. I think for a lot of pastors, they would say that's important. And really in every ministry setting, that's been the case. Um, and, I've, and I've also been able to experience other people building bridges to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I came to Florida new about 16 years ago, and I feel like this conference built a bridge to me and really key important mentors in my ministry here, uh, Debbie McLeod uh, comes to mind yeah, early on, and yeah. um, Tim Smiley I worked with in mm. um, the Church Implantation, and just key mm-hmm. people that that intentionally helped me uh, to be welcomed into the conference, and um, and that's been a joy to experience on the other end. So, 
he served all over the country, found yourself here in the Florida conference, and then you get this opportunity to be a district superintendent, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting to hear your relationship with you know, your first district superintendent, Um, but also your desire to be a bridge builder, your work um, and doing that within the local church context and even seeing your dad as a local church pastor. And I'm curious, was was district superintendent on the list of, oh, Jesus, if you love me, you'll let me do this? Mm, That's a good way to put it. (laughs) No, I will tell you, it was, I remember receiving the phone call for Bishop Carter, and I was so surprised, and um, and it and I, I hardly knew what to expect. I had had very good experiences with district superintendents, so that's good. It's always good when that happens. <laughs> um, and I was energized by it. I loved the possibility of being able to stay in Miami because I just love it here, and I feel mm-hmm. like my gifts can be used here in a particular mm-hmm. way. And this this community has been so life giving to me uh, mm-hmm. in the Florida Conference, and I've tried like like many others before me i've tried to be a good ambassador for the southeast district uh when in leadership around the conference i think you know we're a big state so people who grow up in miami you know sometimes they they haven't even visited a gainesville or a tallahassee or a jacksonville mm-hmm. and vice versa is true mm-hmm. and so i think all of us need to be you know positive ambassadors for our parts of the state Mm-hmm. So I definitely think in Florida Methodism, um, I've tried to be that again, like so many others before me, I've tried to be that uh, for the mm-hmm. Southeast District. So I was very, had a lot of pride for it. And so the possibility of being able to help shape it over a period of time was exciting. Um, I am administrative at heart. And so some of those tasks that DSs have to do um, come you know, pretty naturally. And, and I found that that coaching that my dad did for me early on is something I really enjoyed as a DS. So a church would call, you know, a pastor would call and say, hey, I just got here. And can you look at my financial reports? And I would say, I'd love to. <laughs> yes. Please bring me all your financial records, right? Yeah. So we would we could brainstorm together and, mm. uh, and talk through those steps that things that I had actually tried and had worked in a local church. Um, finances or programming, you know, preaching series, whatever it is, or uh, more and more churches that are dealing with property matters. Um, And so I really love that coaching and mentoring part, just trying to kind of walk with church leaders or pastors, uh, teams of people with sort of how to get from point A to point B, um, Mm -hmm. what would be some things to to think about, um, some questions to ask. So I've, I've really, I've just enjoyed that so much and lots of bridge building for sure among people, trying to ask the right questions. I think that, um, you know, one thing I would change in ministry or when I go back to a local church, one thing I'll be more aware of is a time is not on our side. Hmm. And so I think when I came into ministry, I was, it was important to be very patient, you know, be patient with people, patient hmm. with churches. I think if anything, uh, the United Methodist Church has been way too patient with its churches. Hmm. And, um, and, we, I think there's urgency, right? There's yeah. urgency toward our ministries. If if our ministries are not as vital as they need to be, there's urgency. If people in our communities don't know Jesus, there's urgency in that. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's not wait a few years and, and talk that to death. Let's actually do something. And I think there's urgency with our property. There's urgency with our membership. There's urgency around, you know, a bold vision uh, for the future and just grab it. Grab it today. Mm. 
and mm. um, and and um, so that that's something I would do differently. And I think as a DS, I tried to help instill. It's a little bit easier as a DS to say that mm. than the actual pastor of the church um, to come in and say, you know, these are exciting times. And I I would say to I said over and over again in our district, I said, you know, we we've got. Um, you know, 60 churches in the Southeast District. I said, there there will likely be 30 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. And that's not because of disaffiliations. We have very few churches that are disaffiliating. It's more just the natural, you know, churches, every every neighborhood got a church. You know, years ago, every neighborhood right. got a church. And mm -hmm. so today we're just discovering that every church doesn't have the same future and churches are merging and, and doing all kinds of things. And um, so, but I do think the churches that are still here 20 years from now, all of them will, as part of their story, will say in 2016 or 2018, 2019, 2023, we made a terrifying decision. It took meetings. It took angsting, you know, it mm. took great church conferences. For us to make this big decision to sell something, buy something, merge, change our name, mm -hmm. partner with a nonprofit, partner with a developer. Like we did something really big and we were scared to death. And look, we're here. Mm. <laughs> and we're here in large part because we made that really terrifying decision in 2022. Um, I just think we're not going to escape it. I think I think churches that escape really big decision big decisions probably don't have a twenty year future. Um, it's just the time we're living in, and we shouldn't be scared of big decisions. We shouldn't make them lightly. Mm -hmm. But um, I think we've we've had the luxury of not having to make really big decisions for some time, and now's the time. So, what's the big decision going to be? Is it going to be partner with a local organization? Is it going to be to to partner with a developer with, for for some property renovation? Is it going to be to to sell something, buy something, expand, reach out, do fresh expressions? Maybe maybe get out of the property business altogether. Maybe hmm. our big decision is we don't need all this property and let's go meet in a park. Um, hmm. So it's it's exciting. But um, but we need to gear up for that because even as individuals, we I, I avoid major decisions right when I can, <laughs> and so um, so most of us are probably wired that way. But I think that we need to kind of grab hold and embrace that that's probably our future. And making a big decision and um, and discerning the right one. Cynthia, I'm curious as someone who has lived, you know, under multiple DSs and, and worked closely with many of my DSs. Um, you know, a local church pastor sort of holds the burden of the congregation. Um, and, and many of them try hard to not take all of that home, but you do. Um, but it seems to me that DSs at times, depending on how they're wired, are holding multiple congregations um is is my is is my thought correct like do do you is it a a burden mm -hmm. um not and you know burden might not be the best word but uh do you do you carry a lot of emotions around the congregations that you have responsibility for 
You definitely do. You really do. It, the interesting piece too, though, is you are at an arm's length. It, it is different. You don't take it home with you in the same way. Um, I do think pastors and lay leaders really carry the heavy lifting on that um, because if there's conflict in a church, um, it's the, the key players or those folks. And then, um, and then you're, you're at a bit of a distance from it. Now, sometimes it means you wish you were closer. Like I wish I could take care of that. Right. Or this yeah. is what I would do in that situation. Um so you take on that role of advisor, kind of walking alongside. I would say to our lay leadership and our clergy in our conference, however, that I do think that one thing, I think we take on too much on our own and we don't share enough. Hmm. So our ability to talk about problems, conflict, hmm. including the ones we've caused, right? I hmm. always say pastors, you're, the best two words for you to get used to saying, or I'm sorry, right? Because you're going to make mistakes. So being able to go to that church council meeting and say, you know what? I think I rushed that. We had that really conflictive meeting last month. And I think it's because I rushed this conversation about making a change or doing this. And, you know, sometimes we just have to own where we are. And uh, so I think I would say to lay leadership into clergy, try to share as much as you can. And um, and there is conflict in the church and there are sour attitudes in the church and people bring a whole lot of stuff into the church, clergy and lay folks alike. So how do we, how do we keep a healthy balance and distance from, from what's, um, I mean, some of it's just not ours, you mm -hmm. know, we'll need to take mm -hmm. responsibility for what they're bringing into those settings. Um, so like doing that in a healthy way, I think is important. And, um, and sometimes for clergy, I would say, call your DS. I mean, one of the healthiest things you can do is to say, I just need an ear. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And when, when DSs do that, like for example, with our former Bishop, Bishop Carter and Bishop Berlin will be no different. Sometimes that's the best reality check. Mm. Because Bishop Carter would sometimes say, um, you know, <laughs> they're coming to you to solve their problem. It, it's not yours to solve, like give back to them the work, mm -hmm. right? Like, you wouldn't want someone else to do their work. Right. I would, most of us want other people to do our work. Mm -hmm. And so he, sometimes another person is able to see that in mm -hmm. a way that I can't see. I, I think I'm just trying to be helpful. And someone else might say, no, you're actually trying to do their work. Mm -hmm. Really, which is what they want you to do. And so like, like so what role are you meant to play? But mm -hmm. what role are you meant to play in, in the conflict, in the decision making? Um, and that's that's a helpful word. And I think for lay folks and clergy in the midst of the work of the church, that's always a good question too. Like, what are our different roles in this? Um, and uh, so, so I would offer that word. Wow, that's really strong. Really, really strong. So Cynthia, I, I ask all of my guests uh, a question around um, some pivotal events in the life of the United Methodist Church. Um, and one of those pivotal events, I believe, was the passing of the traditional plan at the special session um, of General Conference in 2019. And I'm just 
curious what your personal response was to that. And I'll, I'll name that you and I were on the delegation. Um, mm -hmm. You were just a table over from me. Mm -hmm. um, and so our experience, though, obviously you had yours and I had mine. I think there probably was, we, we, were, we were experiencing something quite similar um, mm -hmm. just by way of physical proximity. Mm -hmm. um, but what was that day like for you? Yeah, thanks for asking. I am. Um, we were delegates there. I was in St. Louis, not far from you know where I'm from. So being in the middle of the country, it was cold. It's winter, um, mm. and there's so many parts of the traditional plan that I I can't be a part of. Right. So all of mm -hmm. a sudden, something passes that I just I can't support in any way at all. I I I had the opportunity to speak to to the traditional plan when it was before us, I was called upon, I went to the microphone. And the one piece that I, of the many things I disagree with, of the one piece, uh, the one piece I spoke about was in the language of the traditional plan, it encourages those who, um, uh, who feel differently about LGBTQ inclusion in the church to um, divide up uh, where we will evangelize. Hmm. Hmm. And um, I had to speak to that. I, I don't see that in the Bible. Someone's going to have to show me in the Bible hmm. where Jesus says, you know, go into the world and make disciples among people who think like you do on this one issue. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, it would be very hard for me to support any legislation that implies that that evangelizing in the name of Jesus now includes this this specific matter. Hmm. Um, so that to me was just a personal kind of reaction of sorts mm -hmm. uh, that I had when I was reading it. Um, ultimately, there was a reaction, right? So ultimately, those of us who were there, like little did we know that that it would pass, that uh, we would leave St. Louis, really not knowing what that meant for our future. And within a few days, there would be full page advertisements around the country mm -hmm. uh, in newspapers uh, that said, this isn't our church. Mm. You know, what just passed is not our church. You are welcome here mm. over and over again in three or four cities in Florida, mm -hmm. Oklahoma, I mean, all over the country. Um, so there was a reaction, which which happens, right? I mean, it happens in in lots of things in our lives where, you know, something someone gets voted in or something gets passed, and it's like there's a reaction. Mm -hmm. So I think as I've tried to explain to churches when I do information sessions about kind of where we are right now, I just try to be honest about that. It's it doesn't have to be explained. It's just something happened. And mm -hmm. there was a reaction. Perhaps the pendulum swung one way and then it, the reaction was swinging the other, whatever you want to call it. Um, it. It happened. And it was the United States. It was it was United Methodists in the United States saying that's not our church. Mm -hmm. a, a global body just made a decision that, that it will be very hard for us to live with. And we haven't lived with it. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, the truth is we haven't lived with a traditional plan because it's not a plan that resonates with United Methodists in the United States. Um, yeah. A small portion of people who do prefer a traditional plan uh, where there are punitive measures for bishops and punitive measures 
for clergy uh, in the LGBTQ community, they are disaffiliating from our church mm -hmm. and they can become a part of a church that has punitive measures about these things. Um, but it's not a large, it's not a majority of the US church. And so that's what we have learned. And, um, and so I think in that respect, it was a catalyst in a way. Mm -hmm. St. Louis was a catalyst in a way for just the, the next, uh, the next chapters of this very long story. Yeah. In our, in our denomination's life. Most of the folks that I've interviewed on this podcast have been local church pastors. So there's that, there, you know, that perspective in laity mm -hmm. who, mm -hmm. um, even those of us who may have responsibilities and influence beyond the local church, like we're thinking about what it meant for our local context. Mm -hmm. um, but as a district superintendent, you, you weren't only going back to one local church, you were going back to an entire district. Yeah. You may not remember, but what, what what were your thoughts as like on that flight back to Miami and like, right. I've got to now lead my district yeah. with this plan that I don't agree with. Um, what was some of the thought process for you? Mm -hmm. as you were right. Back? You know, one thing that that became clear to me, and and it really b was very um, refreshing, and I think, and I'm grateful to serve, have served in a district where, where, you know, it's a metropolitan area, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, the Florida Keys. People understand difference. Mm. They live with mm. difference in their families. They live with difference in their communities. Um, these are not homogeneous communities. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciated the fact that when I returned, I was able to be totally honest with my district. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing that in, a, in an email to everyone. And part of that was just wanting to be transparent. Like, I don't want people to be wondering, I wonder what Cynthia's opinion is, or I wonder what, how she voted. Mm -hmm. Like, I, mm -hmm. I felt like I could be transparent. And then I remember in a clergy meeting, uh, being able to share a little bit more and and for people to understand and respect that it wasn't a point of contention um and I, I again i think part of it is the context i think serving in this part of our state part of the joy of that is just understanding we're in we're in different places on lots of different things mm -hmm. and and part of living here is really being able to to embrace that um so, so being transparent with people was really refreshing mm -hmm. and, and felt like the right thing to do. And when a couple of pastors asked me to, to preach, you know, in those months following, and I found that more and more when I, when I really shared my voice, my own voice in it. So I would say like, I'm, the, I'm your superintendent and this is a role that I, I have. And I would want you to know and want you to hear from me personally. Mm -hmm. And, and oftentimes I would say that because I would, I would share a little bit more perhaps of my history, my own experience of having of having really been raised in a conference in the Midwest that that had leadership from the LGBTQ community and had for mm -hmm. a long time. And so you so to be mentored by really important people in my life who are a part of that community and have been living in a church where they could not be fully open about mm -hmm. that. that 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 has to impact a person it, it yeah. did impact me so i moved to florida but i'm still very much wired 
in um, in having lived and loved and served in a conference that um, has different sensibilities about that. And so, so I bring that. And so people, I think, appreciated hearing the story, hearing my rationale, hearing from me honestly. And so little by little, you just begin to share more transparently. And I think a lot of us in the conference have grown in that. And it's been good for us. It's been mm. good. Honesty is good. Yeah. <laughs> Transparency is a really good thing. And we don't have to kind of beat around the bush and kind of ride the fence or whatever you want to say. It's like, no, like this is this is where I am. And this is how I'll, this is how um, this may or may not impact my leadership role in this way as a superintendent. Certainly I've shared with churches that are a part of the disaffiliation process. I'll be fair with you. Um, I, I will not um, deny that I'm not, I'm, I'm not neutral. I'm not meant to be neutral. I'm an elder in the United Methodist church. My job is not to be neutral. I'm mm. United Methodist and I will want you to be United Methodist. That's just the way it is. And I, the United Methodism I've known is a church where we can live together in difference. Yeah. And so I do believe people can remain and we can live together with differences of opinion on this issue. That is my opinion. And I believe that uh, if churches choose a different direction, I will walk faithfully with them. Um, but that's clear to me as every church I've served, someone has come up to me, whether it be male or female, when I arrive and they say, welcome pastor. I'm not glad you're here. Right? Oh. But they issue a welcome, but they make it very clear. Like, I don't believe women should be pastors and, and, but welcome. <laughs> wow. And whenever that happens, I have learned that that person in part because they have been honest and it feels good to be honest. It really mm. does. And mm. it feels good when someone's honest with you. Mm. So in every example, every example, um, that person has served with me. We have, we have done outreach together. We have worshiped together. We've prayed together. I've done a funeral for the family, right? Five years, six years, whatever, however long. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when my tenure at that church is done, have I changed their mind? I actually don't know. I don't mm -hmm. ask. It's not, like, <laughs> it's not my job to change their mind, right? What mm -hmm. they determined is that they are, that they are, they are called to serve the Lord as United Methodist. And the United Methodist Church ordains women. Hmm. So you are my pastor. I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to I'm going to be honest that mm -hmm. I'm not sure about all this, but mm -hmm. I'm going to welcome you, and we're going to serve well together. And my job is not to change their mind. My job is to serve them faithfully during the time that I'm there. And it's interesting how how well that goes. Now there are people who leave churches, right? So the new pastor is female, and they leave. Guess what? Through this, through the discernment of the last few years, I've come to feel more strongly that that's probably the best decision for them. Hmm. If someone, right, if someone can't abide a female pastor and they are United Methodist, guess what? The United Methodist Church has been ordaining female pastors for almost 70 years. Yeah. Seven, zero. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. So if someone can't abide, then probably, probably the most faithful thing to do is to uh, to seek, you know, worshiping elsewhere at that time. So mm. there are lots of decisions people can make that are faithful to themselves, uh, faithful to the, you know, to the larger church. But I know people live with differences of opinion on this all the time. And it's not a minor thing. Whether or not a woman should be a pastor is not a minor thing. Not a yeah. minor thing for me. Mm. Yeah. And so yeah. I know people in our church can live with differences of opinion on pretty important issues. So mm. I'm convinced the future of the church is also about us 
learning how to live with differences of opinion on this. Um, for those who cannot do that, they will make a different decision. And they are. And so uh, I think for us moving to the future, we're moving to a time when those who remain United Methodists are those who have decided that being United Methodist is more important than one issue. Mm. And they will remain and they will be a part of the conversation. Um, and they may, and we may be sitting next to each other in a pew where we have differences of opinion on this and we can do that. The, the two people sitting next to each other have decided they can do that. It's mm -hmm. not the church. Yeah. Oh man. There's also sort of this cultural lens of individuals who have not originated in the United States who mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are here in the US now. Churches that look more like the countries and the context that they have come from than some of our white majority churches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And praise God, we have that diversity, particularly here in the Florida Conference, we have that diversity. But I think we hit this conversation around LGBTQ inclusion and it lands differently in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And I know particularly in the Southeast district of the Florida Conference, mm -hmm. we have Spanish oriented congregations, mm -hmm. Haitian oriented congregations, um, many different cultural um, touch points within some of those spaces. What has been your approach to serving them in this season? Um, particularly those that may not be able to come at difference, this particular difference in the same way. Right. This is particularly difficult. It is because we do want to honor where people are. Um, in the Florida conference, we have named that, that um, our intention, if the book of discipline were to change, it has not changed. If it were to change, then we would um, have a way for a church to name that it has a traditional understanding of marriage and ordination. Um, the truth is we do this already. In many ways, churches tell us all kinds of things about themselves. Churches say, we only worship with contemporary music. We only worship with tra traditional music. Don't send us a pastor who doesn't like traditional music. I mean, we have all kinds of things that churches say about themselves. And as a candidate, of course, we want to honor most of those. We don't want to send somebody to a place where it's not a good fit. Mm -hmm. And so from my cabinet lens, I don't have a worry about churches naming kind of where they are um, theologically on this. I think that, um, that we already hear that in lots mm -hmm. of different ways for lots of different things, mm -hmm. um, including churches that still say we're not sure about a woman. We mm -hmm. hear that a lot. We're not, we're not sure about a pastor with an accent. We mm -hmm. hear that. And so this isn't the only, I wouldn't want people to think this is sort of the only exception to that. Churches say all kinds of things about what they think they can handle or not. And we grow together. We lean into, um, uh, you know, these matters, you know, over, over time. So we've said that just this last Sunday, I was with a church giving a, an information session in Spanish. And I, um, we tried to talk openly about what it would look like. Uh, they, they have, they have always had pastors that have met that have, that have, that have had a similar theological perspective than they do on, on things. Um, they, they really don't have any basis for feeling like the conference wouldn't, uh, wouldn't continue to honor their vital ministry where they are in Spanish. Um, and at the same time, they 
are under the impression that this is kind of the, the only way for them to move forward is to disaffiliate. Um, and so it's it's really a struggle. And uh, and we do have different, as, as North American Christians, we cannot discount um, the importance of culture in the same way that I just told you about my own background. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, mm-hmm. and I, I'm open with that with my churches too, mm-hmm. that I, um, you need to know my own story to know where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I don't remember a time when I was ever taught that it wasn't okay to be an LGBTQ person serving in the church. Like that's, that's the context I grew up in. So just as, as I might be asking you to change your mind on this, you asking me to change mine also like it goes back to the very roots kind of of who I am. Um, and so I, and so honoring, you know, where people are is important and the cultural piece of that um, is we can't discount that. And, and in a North American context where uh, with immigrant communities, we, um, part of our lifeblood is, is, and, and we want to be more a part of our lifeblood is this, is this the global nature of, of living in the United States today, which is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So how to do that in our in our context, and it's proving difficult. I'll just mm-hmm. be honest; it's proving difficult. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So much has happened these last few years. COVID. At one point, the protocol was the thought uh, that, that that's no longer. Uh, it, it's it's still in front of delegates, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mm-hmm. have as much support as it used to talks of Christmas covenant, um, the GMC launched, uh, we have disaffiliations. How are you, and maybe you're not, and that's okay to say too, but how are you staying grounded and stable in the midst of so much change that's happening around us? Mm-hmm. There's a lot, and I feel like um, I feel like one error we can make is is spending too much time on the daily task of just living in a pretty chaotic time in the life of the church, and forgetting the bigger picture of what's next, and uh, and, and excitement and joy around what's next. Yeah, I am I am committed to faithfully helping churches disaffiliate who have processed that that appropriately in our conference. And that work needs to be done uh, in order for us to move into, into our future. Um, mm-hmm. we, we approved a provision, for better or worse, we approved a provision that, um, that really means that, that those of us working in the church right now for the United Methodist Church are also working toward its um, its weakening, right? Like that's mm-hmm. like processing every disaffiliating church um, is a way in in some way um, weakening the larger body. Mm-hmm. I believe it. I believe it's part of what needs to happen in order for in order for all of us to find a home to be a part of a home. I've, I've named what kind of home I think we can be as a United Methodist Church. Um, others disagree. And so they are moving toward a different kind of home for their future um, relationship, and um, and that that there's a limit to that. There's a limit to that, and I think all of us would agree there's a limit to how much time an entity can spend working toward its 
diminishment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I go to General Conference 2024, that will not be on my mind. How to work toward the diminishment of the United Methodist Church will not be on my mind. I will be wanting to vote to build up the United Methodist Church, to strengthen the United Methodist Church. And um, and I my firm belief is that the only people in the room in General Conference 2024 should be those who are committed to remaining in the United Methodist Church. I do not understand there is now a path to leave. A clergy can send a letter. If clergy if clergy are uh, have have um, negative things to say about the United Methodist Church, then they can send a letter and they can take care of their relationship to the United Methodist Church tomorrow. And these are clergy and local churches. These are these are leaders in our denomination who um, who are talking negatively or publicly talking negatively about the church. In fact, many of them are are teaching people how to leave. Right? They're giving hmm. instruction books, instruction videos on how to leave the United Methodist Church. But interestingly, they are still United Methodist. And so I would say that doesn't make sense to me. There's a way to leave if you want to leave. This is the time. And, um, and those who will be at General Conference 2024 should absolutely only be those persons committed to the future church. Someone would have to clearly illustrate to me how it would make sense for someone who's not committed to the continuing United Methodist Church to be present um, next year and influencing, voting or influencing yeah. our work next yeah. year. So, um, so that's important to me. Um, that's important to me. We have, I believe we absolutely have provided a gracious way for people to leave. Um, I'm living proof of that because that's what I'm doing every single day this year. And the Florida conference has said, this is important enough to us that we want someone to be shepherding folks who feel like they need to leave. And so I know it's happening. And, um, and I, I think next year we need to, we need to start, uh, putting, uh, 100% of our energy into, uh, the future church. Mm. Cynthia, you and I um, were at Florida Annual Conference just a couple of months ago mm -hmm. at this point of recording, and we got to witness uh, the commissioning of three queer candidates. And I know for me as a queer person, that was powerful to watch, to experience, to celebrate. I'm wondering if you saw some of our church's future <laughs> in, in what happened at annual conference mm -hmm. this year for us. I did, I did. Again, if you look at the, there are some pictures that were taken after the, the ordination service as well, commissioning mm -hmm. service of the gr of groups, uh, including the class from from a year ago from 2022. And I tell you, the the smiles, the joy, the tears, the ways they've shared their lives and families with one another, the way they've been joined in prayer. It's been such a it's been such a joy to experience. And I think one thing our church lacks often is joy. Mm. And so whenever it is present to me is, is God showing up just in a, in a real and powerful way. I think God knows what we most need is joy right now. Mm -hmm. And so when it's present for me, I often think this is a God moment. This, let me pay attention to what's happening right here. Mm -hmm. And 
I feel that we are we are moving um, closer and closer to um, to ordaining persons um, or and having persons enter into the various forms of ministry that exist um, in the life of the conference and in our denomination, honoring um, people's journey and their gifts for ministry. Mm-hmm. Being a superintendent, what churches most need is a pastor who's gifted for ministry. And there are lots of different ways to be gifted for ministry. The most important is that you want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I want to do. I want to do this. I want to come to this meeting, right? I want to do vacation Bible school. This is what I want to do with my life. Like that's first and foremost. So you get that. And uh, churches need gifted leaders for ministry. And um, when persons can demonstrate that, uh, the giftedness for ministry, uh, that they've done the the educational work, um, that we've done all the other, there are so many pieces to our process mm-hmm. that um, uh, it's it's a joy to watch that be honored at annual conference. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so for me, this year in particular, the the joy and celebration that came with that. Um, and in our district, um, one of those persons serves here mm-hmm. faithfully and in a context that is very appropriate and one where new disciples are being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are attending, that, families with young children are attending that person's church for that reason. Like this yeah. is this is our church. This is what we want our children to learn, mm-hmm. um, that this is, this is how God loves us. And so there are so many ways and so many contexts. Um, there's so many ways for us to serve, uh, serve the Lord and to, um, and to share the Lord. Um, so for me, it was a real culmination of some, of some wonderful kind of work and some great deep spirit work that individuals have been doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are on our board of ordained ministry and that are uh, the candidates themselves, their families and their local churches. You know, they, they serve in churches that lo- like we don't like the first thing anybody has to do in our process is pass their local church, right? Like an actual church that says, um, you know, at a charge conference, we approve you to keep going. Like we've heard your call to ministry. So it seems to me that if our churches could trust one another more, right, <laughs> then um, that's the first step. You don't, you don't get to keep going in this process unless the church says, we see it in you. We hear wow. your call and we see it in you. And, um, and so these folks that we've ordained and commissioned, I mean, for many of them, that meeting happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a church mm. said, knowing, you know, knowing what they did about the person, knowing uh, that they are a part of the LGBTQ community, saying, we hear and see your call to ministry. We know you'll be a gift to the church. Um, so it's, um, I think it's an exciting time for us. Yeah. Cynthia, do you have hope for the United Methodist Church going forward? I do. I do. I have great hope for our church. I think our church will look different. I think I think all churches will look different. I think churches that look like the past will be churches of the past. So I mm-hmm. think our goal, you know, sometimes churches will say, oh, if only it were like it were, right? No, 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 no. That's not a good sign, right? I don't think there's a future for a church that wants to go backwards. And so for us to be able to really embrace, as I said earlier, that that new thing, that that challenge, that hard decision, 
that we're being asked to make that maybe means we're not going to look so much like a church anymore. Like that might mm. be one of the consequences of our big decision is that someone's going to renovate our facility or the Boys and Girls Club's going to come in and take over the fellowship hall. We're not going to look the way we used to. Well, most people I know are not looking for a church. In fact, they might be avoiding a church. Um, mm. Most most young people today are probably avoiding a, a, a building that looks like a church. So I think if we can kind of step back and think about what makes what is going to make us um, a vital church for the future, um, what are the ingredients? I'm not sure a building that looks like a church is necessarily a vital ingredient. It may be in some places. It will be in some places. Um, but in others, it could be other things. So what's going to help us to be a vital church? What is a vital church? Oh, people are coming to know Jesus, right? Mm. First and foremost, people are coming to know Jesus. Um, might be in our church. It might be outside of our church. It might be in a, in a living room. It might be in a park. It might be at a school. Um, it might be on a, on a sports field. Um, just how are we continuing to do to do the mission of the church? So I think as long as we keep that front and center, I think there's a lot of hope for the church. Um, I think it will look different. And I think that that's, um, that's actually an exciting part of where we are. You know, how, how will it look different? Um, we're seeing that in certain places already. And I think there will be more, more of it. So again, building bridges for new generations to, yeah. come, to know, come to know Jesus. Cynthia, I um, I've always appreciated the leadership that you bring, particularly your gifts for administration and and really, um, I'll say it this way, I'm, and I'm and I mean it, protecting protecting our church. I've mm -hmm. I've 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 experienced you kind of as a mama bear around protecting <laughs> our church, um, and. All of that said, to hear the ways that you can think about church in so many different ways, in different contexts, for different people, for different eras, and, and can speak of all of that so hopefully, um, gosh, what a gift. Um, so thanks for sharing today. Thanks for letting us get just a little glimpse of, of sort of your journey and, and where you are even today. And I'm just very thankful uh, to call you friend and colleague and <laughs> co-conspirator in the work for the future. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk with you and to reflect on my own journey. It's always a good thing to do. Yeah, awesome. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.